I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and of course, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. I am delighted today to welcome David Canfield. David is a book critic for Entertainment Weekly. He also covers TV, stage, and the publishing industry. He's previously worked at Slate, Vulture, IndieWire. You could visit him at his website, canfielddavid.com. But I'm delighted to have him on. I'm a subscriber to Entertainment Weekly, and I like the level of criticism that they bring. I I get to know about these TV shows that I don't watch or these movies I don't get to and don't feel as uh, out of touch as I actually am. So I'm delighted, David. Welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you so much for having me, Roxanne. So, David, how did you get your start as a uh, book critic? How do you how do you get on that path? Well, um, it was actually a a surprise. I started out my career writing predominantly about television. Um, I was at IndieWire, as you mentioned, and then I transitioned to Slate for a year. Um, my heart was always in books and reading, and so it's it's but it's a tough industry sometimes. So I didn't know if I would be able to transition to it. Uh, Entertainment Weekly had an opening for the book staff. Uh, I applied to it, and here we are. <laughs> so, do you get involved, David, in deciding which books to review? Yes. So um, I'm the associate editor at Entertainment Weekly for the book section, and I work with our senior editor, Clarissa Cruz, and we together both in the magazine and online. And how do you decide what to review? There's no science to it. Um, It's a very complicated uh, mixture of speed reading as much as you can. We get, I would say, at least 50 books sent to our offices a day. Mm. Um, We really pay attention to what people are talking about on social media. It's really important for us as sort of a leading entertainment brand to stay leading the conversation while also responding to what people are talking about. Um, And then, obviously, it's trying to just find the titles that we think our audience would be most attracted to. So um, literary fiction, thrillers, really good memoirs, those kind of our sweet spot. Uh, David, who is your reader? I would say that our readership is predominantly female, but we also find that recommending books that might seem to appeal more to men uh, do really well for us. And in general, we try to You try really to focus on the best books. Yeah. You know, because I have always been struck in the years that I've read Entertainment Weekly that I learn about some books I might not have known about and then always appreciate the reviews you do on the books I would know about. Well, thank you. Um, It is – it's always nice to hear that because, you know, you're you're sort of insular with all these books trying to figure out – what we should be recommending, what we should be putting on people's radar, um, because there are so many books that are published every month and so few that I think really break out. So we really do take our role seriously in putting some books that might get forgotten about into people's minds, get them read a little bit more widely. Yeah, and I think, you know, given, as you're aware, getting 50 galleys or books a day and, you know, at R.J. Julia's, you know, it's the same thing. There's an onslaught of books. Now, we've got a lot of staff that help us 
read them, but I often do worry about the, uh, you know, the lower profile under the radar books that are fabulous, not getting the attention that they deserve. And I think a platform like Entertainment Weekly, you know, using that platform to give some light to those writers in those books is important because, you you know, you can imagine what it's like sort of like, you know, wandering in the desert as the as a debut writer that's not considered one of the hot debut writers. David, let me ask you a question that I wonder about. You know, I find in the years that I'm a bookseller, I finish probably only 10% of the books I start at this point, um, where I used to always finish a book. How has being a book critic changed how you read? It's changed it dramatically. Um, I would say... Most obviously, the sheer amount I have to read means I don't get to take as much time with the book as I ordinarily would like. Mm. Um, and again, there there is this sort of process first of selection and then thinking about how we would cover it, and then of course reading it towards that kind of coverage. So if I'm if I read a book and I decide to review it, I'll read it quickly. <laughs> Uh, not necessarily with the care that I would need to review it. Mm. Then after deciding to review it, I would go back to it as much as I could um, just to sort of have a sort of mastery over it and in terms of what I want to say about it. Um, but I would say, you know, it's not as um, it's not always as relaxing as it used to be. I used yeah. to always associate reading with pure enjoyment, and now, you know, it, it is a part of the job, it, it, and we do take it seriously, so it's very much identifying things in the book, whether it's the quality of the writing or the themes or the characters that we think would be interesting to talk about to other people. Yeah, because one of the things that, you know, between books that I read for authors uh, that I'm interviewing on Just the Right Book or authors that are going to be at R.J. Julia's or books that I think it's important for me to have an understanding of, as much as you read or I read, there's remarkably little time for picking up the book that you just want to read for because you want to read it. Hmm. And on top of that, uh, it it's always pains me when there are books that I miss that uh, I'm so meaning to get to when mm. I hear you know other critics or friends talking about it, and I, I simply don't have the time because I've got you know three books coming out in a few days that I need to sort of have an opinion on. So when the National Book Award finalists were announced, for instance, there were a couple that sounded right up my alley that somehow had slipped by me. And um, one of them I've been able to read, a couple others I haven't yet, and uh, which that, are the that ones, can be frustrating. Wh- which is the one you picked up and which are the two you didn't yet? So I have picked, well, I, I should say I've also been rereading um, one of my favorites from the year, which is The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay, which is this sort of... I just sweeping, started that. Yeah, it's, it is beautiful. It's very sad, um, but it also has a lot of hope and, and beauty in it. It's uh, set in the, well, it weaves between two timelines, the present and the 80s. And it's very much about the AIDS crisis, but it also sort of traces the aftermath and what the next generation has inherited. Uh, and it really just paints a beautiful portrait of this group of gay men uh, and essentially what happens as they start dying off, but also as this woman who knew this, this group of men um, has sort of dealt with that trauma as an adult in the present day. Uh, it's really, really just beautifully written, and I'm, I'm, I'm personally hoping it wins. And the one that um, I picked up that I hadn't previously read is a beautifully strange book called The Friend by Sigrid Nunez. Um, I'm not sure if you know about that one. I, you know, I do. And it's funny. I, I, 
I read the reviews, and none of the reviews motivated me to read it. Yeah, so it, the reviews, I think, rightly sort of note that it's kind of elliptical at times, a little, can be a little unwieldy as you're trying to get into it, but it's really about writing and loneliness, and it's sort of a meditation on these themes, and it's, it can be hard to sort of find your way in, but once you do, uh, there's just a sort of stream of consciousness element of it that really sneaks up on you. Because I adore her writing. I've, yeah. I've read her other books, so it's not like I'm unfamiliar with her. I'm a I'm actually a big fan, but then to your point is it didn't seem to rise up the list of the the little pile of discretionary reads. Yeah, exactly. It was I, I'd been familiar with her as well, but it was just not a book that I had seriously considered at that level. Um, and reading it, it definitely stands out as unique among that class, mm-hmm. but I'd say definitely worthy. And then what was the third one that you uh, didn't one- get to? The one I haven't read is Where the Dead Sit Talking. Um, now, this is by a Native American author, Brandon Hobson. And I'd actually, there's a much, let's say, buzzier debut novel uh, by a Native American, Tommy Orange, They're There, which... Which I loved. I, I love, it's one of my favorites of the year. I fully expected it to make the finalists, uh, to rank among the finalists. It ultimately did not, but this book did. So I, I'm very interested to see how they compare. Yeah. And, and, um, do, had you read, it's not published yet in the, uh, the United States, but the milkman that just won the man booker. I have not read it. Uh, that was another one that uh, friends in the UK seemed quite stunned by that win. I'd read a number of the other finalists. Um, but that one totally sneaked by me. I, I believe it's being published at the end of the year here in the U S I just came back from London on Sunday so I was there while the man booker uh, was announced. So I read, I'd say, five or six articles, you know, or reviews about the book, it, you know, in UK uh, newspapers or magazines. And what was hilarious is every one of them prefaced their review saying, yes, this is a very difficult book. Mm-hmm. And not, not, not merely that it's that it was dark, but that it was difficult to read. I didn't, it it was, it was, you know, the man booker often seems to pick books that are more complicated, which I like generally, Mm. but man, every one of these critics were really almost discouraging about picking it up. I had the exact same reaction. I was (laughs) reading about the, I was reading about the finalists too. And it was the one that said, well, that's, that's one that I don't need to pick up immediately. Um, it's that last year they picked George Saunders, Lincoln the Bardot, which is exactly uh, what you say, a very demanding, strange read that if you can sort of, you know, work on its frequency, read on its frequency is very moving, but it's not at all a mainstream read. And it's interesting, too, because the Man Booker really generates a lot of national attention in a way I don't think necessarily the, the National Book Award does here in the U.S. Mm. You know, I, there, there are betting odds and... Uh, there, there's sort of a tradition in many households of, of reading the entire list, um, which is nice. Yeah, which is fabulous. Yeah, uh, my favorite on that list was Washington Black by Essie Jugan. I'm dying to read that. Yeah, it's um, it's just it's riveting. It's um, it's really quite it's quite a remarkable story because it's essentially telling the life of this man who escapes slavery uh, and lives this very improbable, exciting life, 
um, but also the shackles of his trauma remain very limiting for him emotionally, mentally. Mm. And he sort of just traced this exciting journey while also getting a real view into his inner life and, and the pain that he carries every step along the way. It's very much, it's very much a book about freedom and, and how we think about freedom, and it even has a real resonance, uh, a present-day resonance, in just the way that we think about how we have evolved as society and how we have not, and also what the, what the trauma looks like now mm-hmm. for people who have, li- who, who have this legacy who have to carry this legacy. It's, yeah. uh, it's, really, it's really quite extraordinary. Oh, good. I, I, I'm going to put that definitely on the list. Now, before I get to the list of books that you picked out as the books that you have to read for the fall, I came across an interview um, that you did that I particularly loved this question that you were asked. And so at the risk of um, asking you to duplicate something you've done, the question I think this was on LitHub. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, their bookmark section, which I, I think LitHub does a, just an amazing job. Um, and they I've really had do. some of their folks on the podcast as well. But the question they asked you was, what classic book would you love to have reviewed when it was first published? Oh, yes. Um, I believe my answer to that, and it, it remains true, is um, Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Um, and I'd actually picked it because at the time that I was asked that question, her posthumous book, uh, posthumously, posthumously published book, Barracoon, mm. um, had just sort of come across my desk. And that book was sort of this extremely, it was a remarkable story of the last survivor, uh, so to speak, of the Atlantic slave trade and Zora Neale Hurston had sort of interviewed this man and, and told his story. And, and the, the book is, it can be very difficult to read. It's written in dialect, and it's um, very much their conversations and, and her trying to sort of honor his experience. It hadn't been published for various reasons, uh, so that was why it was on my radar. And Their Eyes Were Watching God is a book that I'd read, I think, at first in high school. Um, and she's an author who went unknown for several decades until Alice Walker of the color purple had sort of spotlighted her work, I think, in the seventies, and it really tells a story that, again, resonates today, and it's a classic that I just would have loved to would love to take on from a critical perspective. And and what would be interesting, David? So think about what might be a contemporary version of that book, meaning a incredibly smart book on a topic that people really didn't want to discuss or make part of the mainstream at the time it was published. Is that a fair representation? Yeah, I think that's something that I'm always thinking about as a critic is, you know, there are all the, you know, as you, you mentioned, sort of the hot debut authors or the the incendiary reads that right. really speak to the current moment, but not not necessarily last. And then there are books like that that are published don't get a lot of attention until an influential author or critic comes around and says, this is actually a very, is a seminal book and needs to be treated as such. So I'm always thinking about that. Can you think of something that you've come across this year or that you know is imminently coming out that might fit into that category? Uh, it's, It's a book that's getting a lot of attention, actually, but I fear is perhaps being framed in a way that is very only of the moment. It's 
a debut story collection called Friday Black. Have you yep. heard of it? I, oh, yep. yeah. I definitely have heard of it. Yeah, the, he, the author, uh, Nana Kwame, was just profiled in the New York Times. I guess what I mean by that is it's a story collection. It reminded me a lot of one thing that stuck out to me was that it's very much a part of this new sort of pop culture trend that I find very exciting, which is kind of like new black surrealism. Uh, so films like Get Out and Sorry to Bother You, television series like Atlanta, and also Donald Glover's music video, This is America, which sort of frame almost polemical stories and ideas in kind of absurdist context. Mm -hmm. And this story collection uh, takes on elements of racism and consumerism and, and very timely topics in this sort of surreal, bizarre framing. So you have a story set in an amusement park where essentially white um, attendees act out their racist fantasies and through simulations. And you have a story of Black Friday Whoa. in which um, there are corpses all over the floor and it seems through the eyes of this beleaguered you know, employee. So the stories have very rightly, I think, been heralded as speaking to current anxieties uh, and current ways of telling stories and sort of excitement over this new trend. But I also think there's a sort of timelessness in the way that the book communicates ideas about just humanity and, and brutality, or I guess depravity even. And it, it feels like something that maybe the way we talk about it will change, if that makes sense. Mm. But that will last in its own way. Yeah, I, you know, I hope you're I hope you're right, David, because one of the things um, that you do worry about is that books like this are on trend and right. not necessarily changing the fundamental conversation or that they're changing the fundamental conversation in sort of a, a glacial pace that you can't even identify the change in any kind of micro measure. Yeah, I think that the, the timely label, which is everywhere right now, it's sort of a word I avoid using in headlines. Um, can be as much of a curse as it is a blessing because mm -hmm. it limits the way we look at the work. And a story collection like Friday Black, which has so much ingenuity and so much, it does have a timeless, there's a timeless sentiment to what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And I hope that that translates and that it's not sort of boxed in uh, in the way that we've seen with some other books. Yeah. You know, the way you were describing the stories, did you ever read Amy Bender? I did, yes. So it reminds me of her style, where she comes up with the fabulous, absurdist way of making an, a point. Uh, yeah. But they are crisp and powerful in making their point, but you have to sort of go along with her absurdist view of the planet. Yeah. The other thing is that there's almost a mundanity to some of these stories, too. The, the prose is is very matter-of-fact at times. It's just sort of within the world that he creates, it, the, the narrators speak about speak very frankly and very contentedly almost about hmm. what they're seeing. But then there's also this sort of sneaking awareness that something's wrong. And I think that's where the, the prescience of it, the, the power of it really translates, is in the sense that something's not right. Because that's something that I think we can feel in our own lives and something that we felt in our own lives throughout time, right? Hmm. All right. I'm, so now I've got two more books to put on my list. The other book I want to uh, ask you about that's on your list is The Lake on Fire by Rose Ellen Brown, because her one of her early books called Before and After 
resonates oh my in my brain decades later. I love, she is one of my favorite writers. Um, this is, I don't know how many people know Rosalind Brown. This is her first novel, and I think uh, at least over 15 years. Um, and it actually goes right into what you were talking about uh, at the beginning about highlighting not just authors who might not be on people's radar, but small presses, mm. um, which is a really important mission of mine and something that I know we could do a lot better on. This is published by Sarah Band Books, Sarah Bandy Books, which is not a publisher we highlight often or really anyone does because they don't publish too much and they don't have the profile of a Penguin Random House or a Simon Schuster. Um, so that's very important to me. Rosalind Brown is a beautiful author, a yeah, beautiful I love fiction her. writer. Um, her last book was, as I mentioned several years ago, especially novel. This is a story of Jewish immigrants set in the 19th century, and it's really a meditation on the American dream. It, 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 you can see its DNA in many stories of the past, many classics. Uh, it's really about family. It's about revolution. Uh, and it's really just about transformation of social landscapes. And uh, that's very current as well. Well, I'm excited about reading that because I keep my eye out. You know, I've read her poetry. I've read her novels. And I, and I keep meaning to check, like, is she still alive? Yeah, I had... I think I had actually, it had first been put on my radar, someone noted that this was being published on Twitter. And I, at first I just sort of glanced by it, and then I was like, wait, Rosalind Brown? <laughs> I haven't read a book of Rosalind Brown's in a while. So, uh, yeah, it's just, it's so great. And it really lives up to what those familiar with her uh, know of her. And it's also just, this is a great introduction to her because it's a big, sweeping, immersive story that uh, hopefully draws new readers to her work. Great. Well, I'm excited to pick. That's also on my list, but that was already on my list. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. we'll put your whole list on our Just the Right Book uh, podcast uh, website so our listeners can look at the whole list. But share with us a couple of other books on the list that you think might not be getting the attention uh, that they deserve. Sure. So uh, I'm actually going to go back to the Booker list for a minute and, and pick out a book that was published this week. Uh, it's Everything Under by Daisy Johnson. Um, this was She was the youngest ever nominated author for the Batman Booker Prize. Uh, this story initially seemed a little... Uh, there have been a, a number of retellings of classic myths uh, coming out lately. This seemed to be in line with them. It's a retelling of the Oedipus myth that... Totally typical uh, man kills father and marries mother story. Uh, and it is about a woman who is essentially reuniting with the mother who abandoned her when she was a teenager. And at first, you don't really see, number one, how it fits into the myth, and number two, what about it is so distinctly special. And gradually, there are new threads to this story, and there's elements of gender bending and and there's a monster and all of these elements start coming together in this sort of incredible shocking way and of course because this is a retelling of a myth there is this sense of rolling tragedy that there is a, a, an awful event on the horizon and johnson writes to it with such exacting surprising um grace and it's just a really powerful surprisingly powerful read Okay, now I have to put that on my list, David. This is getting a little annoying. <laughs> I'm going to hey, have to give up well, sleep altogether. 
Welcome to my world. <laughs> you know, David, one of the things that you've um, talked about a bit that I'm curious to hear more about, what trends do you see in what readers want? Well, exactly what you just mentioned, what I just mentioned, um, there have been books, there was a retelling of Beowulf called The Mere Wife, all these retellings trying to sort of situate classic stories in modern contexts. And I think that the goal of these stories is not necessarily to, you know, add, say, queer or feminist, you know, elements to them, but to sort of demonstrate their timelessness and demonstrate why, how we can think about them in new ways. Uh, and I think Everything Under is actually the best example I've read this year of how mm-hmm. we can do that how we can think about family and fate uh, and things like that. Um, and more generally, I think there is, there is, as I mentioned, a focus on the surreal a little bit more. I think that people are looking for ways to be taken out of reality a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and even the, the book had mentioned Washington Black. It's, it's, it's very realistic, but it's also the, this man's journey is increasingly improbable. And it, you know, he escapes in a hot air balloon. It, it goes in all these, unusual directions for what is fundamentally an escape narrative and, and, a, and a story of living and freedom. Mm-hmm. So I think that we're seeing a lot of authors find new ways of exploring our predicaments and taking us outside of the bounds of reality a little bit to get at truths in a different kind of way. And do you think people are reading more or less or this or reading books, I should say, because I think we'd all have to agree people are reading more, um, but they're but they might be reading, you know, uh, Twitter or other social <laughs> media platforms rather than things that are long form. But do you yeah. think people are reading more long form writing as a result of the general amount of increase in reading? So I think that this year specifically, we've seen a nice uptick actually, and you've seen it in sales and sort of a small but notable resurgence for independent bookstores. Um, obviously, the you know gossipy Trump administration tell-all has been very profitable for publishing houses. Mm-hmm. Books by everyone from Omarosa to Bob Woodward, topping bestseller lists. Um, but that's also give, you know, that kind of success offers a little bit more flexibility in publishers to give more resources to their smaller books, to books that they really believe in. Right. So that's been nice to see. Um, and I do think that uh, we, I'd mentioned Tommy Orange is There There. That was a New York Times bestseller. It's very literary, but and it's very new. So that was nice to see. Um, books like that, there, were, there have been a few examples of books like that breaking out. And then the other thing I would mention is uh, the undeniable power right now of celebrity book clubs, um, really vaulting really strong titles uh, into the mainstream in a way that it's hard for reviews to do on their own. So like a Reese people, Witherspoon or... Exactly. A Reese Witherspoon is a great example. Um, her last book, Where the Crawdad's Sing, this is actually something that's going to be in our magazine a little bit, is tracing how that book went from, had a very quiet launch, but really from that book club bump, and then word of mouth has really emerged as a best-selling powerhouse. Uh, and so that's that's those kinds of things are great to see, and we're seeing that a little bit more as people like Reese and Emma Roberts really pick literary books that are tougher to sell sometimes and, and give their fans, their followers, a really concise, um, convincing reason to check them out. You know, I read Where the Crawdads 
um, thing early on. Uh, mm-hmm. And there was something so old-fashioned and delicious about yeah. that book. I mean, I was absolutely mesmerized. There were two books that I put in that category. One was West by Karen Davis. Mm. I think that's who that's by. And the other is Where the Crawdads Sing as what might be called small books, both literally and figuratively, but they were so representative of just the power of storytelling. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's a great, that book is a great example. It's sort of this Southern set murder mystery. It's it's a page turner. It's it, you know you kind of get to soak in the humidity and the atmosphere. Um, but then it also it, it, it so it does feel old fashioned. But then it also sort of pulls you in surprising directions. And exactly, that's what great literature does for sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Before we run out of time, let's let's try to do a couple more things. One is how about another book on your must read list? Another book on my so if we got one more, gotta gotta choose wisely here. Yeah. Um, let's do. This is publishing next week. Um, Family Trust by Kathy Wang. Okay. I, when I picked this book up, I was expecting sort of a crazy rich Asians esque, splashy, fun family novel, almost mostly a comic novel. What I instead found was something far more ambitious and fascinating. It is a almost. Franz and like it rem- actually at times in its structure remind me a little bit of the corrections. Really? Uh, it's a, yeah. It's about a Silicon Valley family, a contemporary saga. It follows the perspectives of various people within the family. They are Chinese American, the parents are immigrants, and the patriarch is essentially dying. And so we're following these characters as they navigate the end of his life and sort of where they are in their lives. It's the kind of big family novel that American literature is often very good at and very uniquely good at. Uh, and in this case, the fresh perspective and the new, the fresh kind of setting gives it so much life. My favorite character is the, the matriarch, the ex-wife of the patriarch, uh, Linda. She is sort of trying to wade back into the dating game and experiencing apps, but she's a little grouchy about it, and yet you sort of feel her desire for connection. And she goes on this journey, and her chapters almost read like these really poignant, melancholy short stories, and it's a perspective that I'd never read in a novel like this before. And it just sort of gives the form so much new life. Um, So that would definitely be my recommendation. All right. That's great. And then what is the book that changed your life, David? What is the book that changed my life? It's going to be... A very, very generic answer, and I think so many in my generation have given it, but it would have to be Harry Potter. Mm. Uh, I grew up with it, and and it became a pop culture phenomenon. And the reason why those books resonated for so many people, uh, myself included, is that it gave me a -a once-in-a-lifetime kind of reading experience, where as I got older... Mm. The quality of the writing changed. The mood of the writing changed. It matured with me. And that's the kind of writing, the reading experience that is so singular to being young. Uh, and it's so 
meaningful to growing up, to be able to grow mm. with a book and characters and, and have the writer challenge you in new ways as you get older. Um, it's actually something I, I realized later in life, the way that those books evolve and the way that they almost taught me how to read and taught me how to read more complexly. And uh, I know I'm not alone in that. How old were you when the first one came out? So actually, I was six was when it came out. Did your parents read it to you then, the first book? or yes. did you? Yeah. Yeah, it was actually sort of the book that we that got me into reading. I was not like the the youngest reader, you know. I developed into a reader. I was not a born reader, and that was really the book that did it. You know, what's interesting in all the conversations I've had over the last couple of years, no one's mentioned that, but it makes so much sense what you're saying. That's so. I'm. It honestly surprises me that I, you've never heard of because um, it was just so formative for me. Yeah. Well, I can I can understand. You know, and I remember I was a bookseller. Um, already. And I remember, you know, the kind of uh, surprise that the length and complexity of a book like the Harry Potter books could resonate with so many young kids, I, you know, because when I think not only did it change your life, but I think it changed fundamentally the way publishers thought about children's books. Or what were, you know, children's, I'm using that word deliberately, that, uh, you know, these were very grown-up books for children. I actually had the privilege of interviewing J.K. Rowling's American editor at Scholastic, uh, and he spoke a lot about just the, the way he thought of packaging these in a way that hadn't been done with children's books, with, you know, the fine paper and the, mm-hmm. you know, making the the the, 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 the physical book itself a sort of treasure uh, in the Mm. way it was done and that was very new and now i think with big fantasies and series it's it's much more common so i think you're absolutely right about that so david i'm not going to be able to record just the right book for like a couple of months so i catch up on all these books you've recommended okay david really this has been such fun to have this conversation uh, with you and i so appreciate your perspective and the work uh, that you do for Entertainment Weekly and, you know, the kind of energy you add to motivating people to just read more. Well, thank you so much. It was so great to do this. And I just I'm always happy to talk books for an hour. All right. Great. We'll have you back on. Awesome. Well, I look forward to it. Thanks again to David Canfield. I hope you all got some great ideas for your to be read pile. Please be sure to check them out at CanfieldDavid.com and make sure you pick up a copy of Entertainment Weekly. Please continue to send us your notes. You can email us at info at justthewritebookpodcast.com or message us on our Facebook page. And don't forget, you have until November 1st to get 10% off on your Just the Right Book subscription. It's like having your own personal bookseller choosing your books and then they just show up at your door. We've got thousands of customers who are getting this for themselves or they're getting it for their dad who's a book lover or their sister who's a book club fanatic and they're all thrilled i love reading the testimonials from everybody being so happy about reading just the right book so just go to just the and enter the promo code podcast just the right book podcast is produced by collisions the podcast division of CRN International. Our original new music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. And our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.